You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Dan Simmons is the author of Hyperion, Olympos, The Terror, and Drood. His newest novel is Black Hills. Thank you for joining me, Dan. It's always my pleasure, Rick. Dan, once again, you're writing a historical novel with a kind of a, a, a weird fiction backdrop. Um, this is, is really, I think, a, a, a fascinating subject, and what a great character. I, I think the thing that strikes me more than anything about this novel is how character-driven it is um, and, and how wonderful the central character is. So tell us about creating Pahasapa. I enjoyed creating Pahasapa, and you're right about it being a character-driven novel for all the sort of high-concept elements that go into the book Black Hills. You know, it starts with the uh, Battle of the Little Bighorn and Custer's Death. It ends with a possible dynamiting, um, well, it not ends, but one of the high points is a possible dynamiting of Mount Rushmore in the 1930s when President Franklin Delano Roosevelt is visiting. But for all that sort of talking points for a movie, it was the characters, and especially the character of Pahasapa, which means Black Hills in Lakota, uh, that uh, prompted me to write the book. I wanted to get as far into the mind and heart of this uh, American Plains Indian in that in definitive period at the end of their culture, at least their Plains Indian culture, from the 1870s to the 1930s as I could. So it was a joy to write. Uh, I, when last we spoke, you had just spent uh, an extended period of time in the mind of Wilkie Collins, not as excitingly uh, pleasant an experience. <laughs> And <laughs> so I'm wondering if you sought such a character just as in part as a relief from uh, Wilkie's uh, rather uh, peculiar uh, version of the world. It would seem I'd want to find some uh, antithesis to live in for a while, but to tell you the truth, I loved Wilkie so much. He was my favorite all-time unreliable narrator. I just loved being in Wilkie's drug-soaked lying, conniving mind. I just didn't want that book to end. That's why it's probably so long. We're talking about the book Drood, Mm -hmm. because uh, no one loves an unreliable narrator more than I, and he was the ultimate. But, you know, you have to to find a new home every once in a while. So I thought this uh, young man, he starts as a 10-year-old boy, Pahasapo, when he touches um, George Armstrong Custer at the instant of Custer's death, and Pahasapo is convinced that Custer's ghost comes into him, and it lives there for another 60 years or so. Um, but he's uh, the character is almost the opposite of Wilkie. He's totally dependable. But like Wilkie Collins, who was addicted uh, to opium and had that on his back, this boy has a ter- terrible affliction, which is a gift that when he touches some people, he, he gets a, just a sudden image, memory of their lives, sometimes all the way back in their lives and sometimes forward in time. And to him, it's not a good gift at all. It's a, it's a terrible vision. He doesn't want to see into anyone's future, especially not his own. One of the things that strikes me uh, uh, about uh, Parasapa is how he is in many ways the ultimate, the classic American hero. 
You know, thank you. Uh, someone said to me who enjoyed the book, said that it's the great American novel, and, you know, it's written about Native Americans. Maybe that's what it took. I don't believe I wrote the great American novel. I think that's been done or is yet to be done. But uh, I think you're right about something quintessential about Pahasapa. So um, let's, one of the things, too, that I think... Uh, is is really fascinating about this character is uh, the way you you create his voice in in the prose. So talk about um, you know, uh, the language how how you achieve that kind of uh, synthesis of, of the language that that really brings us to the vision of somebody who's very very different from the people who are reading this book. And yet, of course, this book is must be informed by the times in which we live. That's a that's a great question, and it's a, it's a hard one to answer. Uh, in some of my other books, such as Drood, where I wrote in first person from the confused Wilkie Collins point of view, the first person was the key to doing that sort of thing. And it was also the key to bringing the reader back to the 1860s London and seeing that different world and how people thought differently. People do think differently in different areas. We tend to forget that. But with Pahasapa, it's all third-person narration. So the creation of his point of view and his cultural grounding, backgrounding, as it were, comes slightly from certain concepts that don't really translate well into English at all. So there's some Lakota language there Mm -hmm. to give a sense of the worldview that is largely lost not only to us, the you know white folks looking at it, but uh, lost to the uh, the Lakota as well. So it's partially partially language, and most of all for me, it was a sense that did permeate that culture, and Pahasapa was more sensitive to it perhaps than some, since he was training to be a holy man. But he lived in a numinous world. When he, the character, learned that word from a mentor, uh, the actual poet laureate of South Dakota, Don Robinson, when Pahasapa is a grown man, he, lear- he learns the word numinous, and numinous just glowing and alive with spiritual energy is, he realized when he was in his 60s, how he had lived the first third of his life as a boy and young man. The entire world was alive to him and speaking to him. And so I was trying to capture some of that vision without being soppy or politically correct uh, that motivated me to, to uh, try to get deeper into his mind and thoughts. Uh, you know, th- this word "numinous" is is really it's a it's a wonderful word just to hear it spoken, and, and to to have it inform the vision of the novel. It is is such an interesting idea, and that's one of the things I I, I really like about this book because I think that um, it it doesn't force you to believe what the characters believe or perceive what the character you just see the world as they see it so there's a a sense of being able to hold on to our own more 20th century world vision but experience the world through this you know kind of spiritual and uh fantastic lined vision yeah that was fun trying to do that it was also fun uh avoiding the usual traps when uh uh, when non-Native Americans, I don't like that term. I'm, I'm, my grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee, so it's Indian, really. Uh, when non-Indians try to write about the Indian culture and so forth, it gets so slobberingly politically correct, and you know they were they were total stewards of the environment. Well, no, they weren't. There's a line in my novel where the ghost of Custer, who lives in Pa's mind, 
for six decades says, we used to smell your camps 15 miles away because of your garbage dumps. All that's true. <laughs> but Pa Sopov is able to see the power not only of his own culture, but the magic of his enemies, uh, the uh, Wasichu, the fat takers, which is us, the, the white people's culture. And he, he really had that revelation when he climbed to the top of the tower of the Brooklyn Bridge uh, in, in the 19, uh, early 1930s. He suddenly realized that that's, they have their magic, too. Now, this novel takes place, uh, you know, across a, a wide swath of time and history and uh, America. So um, did you uh, avail yourself of, of our fabulous uh, travel roads to travel and, and go to these places? Did you, did you get to the top of the bridge? You know, I never have been. I haven't taken the promenade walk. I've been across the Brooklyn Bridge so many times, but never on foot. Mm. Uh, I've ever since uh, David McCullough wrote the Great Bridge back in the '80s or whenever, which I found a great nonfiction book. I've been mesmerized and and uh, seduced by the history of the Brooklyn Bridge. So I knew that even though Pahasapa didn't come back east very often, if he did get back there, he'd have to have a reason to uh, not only go to the bridge but get as high on it as he could. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, talk about researching this book. I know that you enjoy research. Uh, did, was this a, a book that you were able to research from the luxury of your uh, Colorado Erie um, using the, the fabulous World Wide Web, or did you get, get out there and, and look at stuff, too? I really enjoyed looking at stuff in this case. I never got to London when I was writing Drood, uh, which is set in the uh, 19th century London, of course, because it, it's Dickens' day. Uh, and I didn't mind disappearing into uh, original documents and maps and so forth of 1850s, 1860s London. But I had to go spend more time in the Black Hills. I've, I've visited there for many years. I, you know, I had to see what it felt like to stand on that sacred ground of the Little Bighorn where Custer fell. And so those elements uh, I actually did. And I know Chicago, part of one of the settings is the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago, and as a kid, I remember the, my sense of wonder that all that was built down there by Jackson Park and the museum um, down there, the Science and Industry Museum. All that was built. The Midway was part of a Midway. I imagined that fair when I was nine years old. And so realizing it, describing it in great detail was fun. But I found the Internet, to answer your question, more unreliable in this research than ever before. Really? That's very interesting. Why, 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 why do you say that? Well, I found the usual problem, which, uh, like the Wikipedia problem, not to knock them, but false statements get repeated over and over. I, I found it very difficult to track down the actual day um, General Custer's widow, Libby, died. Mm. Uh, they had April 2nd and April 3rd. And I'm, I'm, right now I've forgotten. It was uh, the 4th, I believe. But the, the, the mistakes were perpetuated in books and on the Internet, and it wasn't until I got to an actual New York Times report of her death that it confirmed, you know, the actual date. Uh, I looked at, without exaggeration, dozens of contemporary newspaper accounts of the first giant Ferris wheel, the wonderful big Ferris wheel that Ferris built for the 1893 Chicago Columbian Exposition World's Fair. And no one would tell me which way it rotated, and I just had to stop. <laughs> it took me two weeks to find out that that stupid thing rotated both directions, which modern Ferris wheels generally don't. So, you know, I decide which way it'd go. I, I was laughing stock of my forum because I asked uh, 
my website forum people to help me figure out which way this Ferris wheel rotates. So they got the usual response of, well, looking from which direction. <laughs> uh, now, uh, you know, that one of the things that you do in this novel is to, to move from one iconic American scene to another. You, you know, you've mentioned, uh, you know, Little Bighorn, the the Brooklyn Bridge, the uh, the World's Fair. And these are all, you know, kind of... As a, the Mount Rushmore, these are all like super, super uh, Americana kind of stuff. And, and yet one of the things that your narrator allows you to do is to approach that from a almost an alien kind of perspective. That's true. Even though he's grown up in the culture and is driving a Model T or a 1915 Harley Davidson, you know, he's as comfortable in the culture as anyone else, except he's an outsider being an Indian in a white culture and near Rapid City in South Dakota and all that, uh, he still is looking at it with alien eyes, which always makes the description a lot more fun. Now, uh, one of the things that you do in this novel, uh, this novel is, in a sense, I think, uh, hark, there's almost a, a, a genre or, or subgenre of novels that you might call the unstuck-in-time genre, where characters will... You know, them either the characters will come on stuck in time, or they'll meet people and, and you know jet back and forth in their lives, and that that of course happens with with Pahasapa. So and with with that kind of novel, um, I think you must have a, a really um, must be difficult to orchestrate this in the way you do, so that you're not these these time shifts and these character shifts and these perspective shifts, um, you know, are orchestrated and build in the way that they do to this novel. So talk about creating these things. And also, it's a, in some ways, it's not you have like these almost like short stories too. So jetted in here. So talk about, you know, these kind of creating these little separate vignettes that exist outside of the novel in a sense, but also within it. Well, they're not like separate stories that have been transplanted into the novel. That no. always stands out to me. I don't know mm-hmm. about you. Do you notice those? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can tell. And, and I, yeah, no, it's, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, a lot of literary fiction. And you go to the front, and this appeared in Grant, and this appeared you know, in this little magazine, and you just feel it. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. been adapted a little bit, but you feel it. So everything was integral, but you're right. They, they're seemingly standalone scenes. Uh, but the key word you used was the key word for me, orchestrate. It's, it's more like composing music when you're moving backward and forward in time. If you do it in any sort of arbitrary sense or any sort of too clever by half, you know, writer plotting sense, the reader knows it's false. So there has to be an organic rhythm to why the character is moving from this, the point of view is moving from this year to this year, you know, suddenly we go from 1935 to 1887. And as you do it, there has to be an internal rhythm that is very much like composing music. And I, I don't know how else to explain it, but I, I depend on my own musical sense as a, as a lover of music, especially classical music and of jazz, because some of it becomes a little improvisational. You don't know why you're doing it, but it feels right, and then you go on a riff of this aspect of the structure, why you should go from this year to this year. I don't know, but it feels right. And if it works, there is a orchestrated sense that it was uh, musically correct. I like this idea of, of uh, jazz informing the novel uh, because it, of course, takes place in, in part across the jazz age. Um, but it, it has that kind of uh, feel to it. So, I mean, 
did you write this novel from page one to page, let me check here, and uh, 486? <laughs> I did. I, I've written all my novels that way. I, I, I admire uh, people who write otherwise. I talked to Joseph Heller not long before his death, Catch-22 author, and, and asked him if it was true that he wrote separate scenes on uh, three-by-five cards and filed them away and then shuffled them. And I'd read that somewhere, and he said, no, that wasn't true. They were five-by-seven cards. <laughs> and so I admire people who can do that, but I have to tell the story from beginning to end because I don't have a clue as to how it's going to end when I, you know, usually when I'm halfway or two thirds of the way through. Now, you also, uh, in this novel, uh, you know, bring some uh, real life characters to life in your novel. And these are characters who have been dealt with in, you know, lots of other novels, you know, Roosevelt and, and Custer. So talk about uh, how you do that in this novel to make them yours and maybe what other um, visions of these characters have informed your vision or what biographies have informed your vision? Sure. I, I'll admit FDR is just a walk-on character. He has a cameo at one point, no no effort to to get into his mind or create him as a real character. He's just there when possibly everything's going to be blown to hell. Uh, but let's take the Custer character. That really interested me. Mm-hmm. I spent a long time, um, at least for myself, documenting the way we've treated George Armstrong Custer mm-hmm. from when he was uh, deified in the 1800s after his death, made not only a martyr but almost a Christ-like figure, to the heroic figure, you know, the classic movie, Zero Flynn, and they died with their boots on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then in the 60s with the Vietnam War and the movie Little Big Man, I can't remember the name of the actor, but for decades he typified Custer, who was a dullard and a squaw killer and a vicious idiot. And that still still reigns in a lot of contemporary minds, mm-hmm. especially in my generation. So going after some sense of who the real Custer was was a great challenge. And I found, as is true with most people, when you try to find out about them, they're very complex. They don't reduce themselves to cartoons very well, even after almost a century and a half of trying with Custer. The real George Armstrong Custer was as much a mass of contradictions as any Shakespearean character, like Macbeth. And so one of the ways that I expressed that was that we hear him talking in Pahasapa's mind years before the young Pahasapa, who this ghost has invaded him when he tried to count coup. Pahasapa counts coup, just runs up to touch Custer to show his courage. The little bighorn, right second Custer dies, and he can feel the ghost coming into him. So Custer is talking in his mind for years before Pahasapa learns any English, so he can't understand it. But instead of going back through his life justifying it, um, General Custer in the darkness there is sort of writing these uh, lascivious, lusty letters to his wife Libby. Mm -hmm. So I come into his life through the passion he shared with his wife, and then things broaden out from there later. And that that was the uh, key for me. It's a really, it's it's a, 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 a certifiably unique vision of a man, as you say, who has been shown in all sorts of contradictory modes in, in American literature. Yeah, we, we don't know how to deal with him. It depends on the current political status that our society is in. Mm-hmm. And, right, and he's still hated by most. You know, they renamed the battlefield. It used to be the Custer Battlefield up there. But now uh, it can't be. It has to be the the Battle of Little Bighorn, and most of the rangers at the park, or many of them, are are 
American Indian, which is all great. It's all a step forward. But at the same time, when you take a step forward, you lose something. You lose the perspective of where you used to be. And uh, I think the trick in writing something like this is not to get too caught up in any of the illusions. Now, um, talk about, uh, you know, the, the supernatural and uh, elements of the fantastic, the supernatural tropes and elements of the fantastic that you work into this. One of the things I think you do very well with this novel and, and all of your uh, historical fiction, which you, you've conquered yet another genre, must, your, your, your publisher must be thrilled, is to um, bring enough, use the supernatural to open up like a third or a fourth dimension to, to give more complexity and make your work more entertaining and accessible to the reader. But it doesn't uh, insist on being a ghost story or a, a scary horror story. Thank you for noticing that. I was in my local small town borders here last week, and I was surprised to see Black Hills was already shelved. Uh, today is supposed to be the release date, I believe. But at any rate, they, they put it only in the horror section. Really? After. Yes, because it, it that's should what, be with the, the alienist or, or with you know the 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 you know historical fiction. Uh, yeah, I just toss it in with the other books is my suggestion. Mm-hmm. But they say no, it's it's got a barcode on it says that it's it's only horror, and this just makes me pull great clumps of hair out, because even though there is this this element which will either allow the novel to to sink or swim, of Pahasapa's ability which is real in his culture, mm-hmm. they believe it. It mm-hmm. is a certain sign of a certain type of holy man who can, through touch, see into people's past and future. So it's consistent in his understanding of the universe. Whether it's real or not, you know, we'll let the reader decide. But he believes it. He believes in Custer's ghost. But it is not a ghost story. There is nothing scary in it. You know, if you say Hamlet's a ghost story, you're technically right. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody's ever put it that way before, but that's a really smart way of looking at it, yes. There's a little more to it, isn't there? And it's not about clanking chains and the ghost strangling people in the night. Uh, So ghosts have been in all sorts of genres and literature forever without dominating necessarily the tale. And that's, that's the important thing about Black Hills. The supernatural elements are consistent in Pahasapa's universe for his belief, his people's belief, and whatever ability he has, maybe it's just a really powerful intuition. Uh, maybe it is uh, some sort of uh, psychic ability, which I don't believe in. I don't believe in anything supernatural. But it gave me the key to allow him to understand things that otherwise simply would have been beyond the kin of any character I could create. That's which is why this novel is is so wonderfully big and breathing and and uh, and exciting too. Uh, so when you're writing a, a novel that's set across so many years with so many events, the outcome of which every reader knows, um, it, one of the things that's difficult is to uh, the challenge is to, uh, to to create tension. So talk about creating tension, you know, on a character level when we know how everything turned out, or at least we think we do. Yes, well, I didn't know how Pahasapa's personal story would turn out. Mm -hmm. I truly didn't until close to the end of the book. That's true of me in so many of my novels. Uh, It doesn't scare my wife, but it scares me every time. But what it came down to is we know how history turned out, but we don't know how his personal story turns out. Is it going to be a, a real tragedy or not? 
just because the history of the Plains Indians can be read as a serious tragedy doesn't mean that that's true for every member of the culture. Perhaps there was some great joy or redemption at some point in his life. And I, I didn't know. And that suspense drove me to keep writing his story, to keep discovering uh, all these strange revelations that, that I found while writing it. And if it works, that'll keep the reader interested, too. It comes all the way back to what you started with, character. Now, you're working on a new novel, which I think you told me is called Flashback? Flashback it is, yes. Tell us about that. Where, 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 what universe are, what uh, literary genre are, are you pelting your poor publisher with now? Well, it's science fiction that I would not be allowed to, uh, I do not allow them to market as science fiction. Oh, good. So you have some say, um, was it, you know, that you mentioned that the barcode of this put this in the horror genre. That's just, that's tragic. Well, everything's being thrown in there. My last uh, four books have been put there. And this is just a sniveling, whining author. But I know too many readers who, you know, especially after my novel, The Terror, don't think of me in any way associated with horror per se. So they're not going to find the books if that's the only place they are. But that's another problem. But my next book is as much or more out of genre as anything I've written. It's a it's in the genre of dystopian novel. Mm. It's a fairly near future when everything that can hit the fan has hit the fan in the United States. And it sounds depressing, but I hope there's some humorous and ironic elements as well. You know, some poll recently said something like 78% or 82% of Americans, of Americans think the country is going in the wrong direction. Well, what do we know? You know, they ask us and we're worried about things because the news makes us nervous. But I'm assuming that that 82% or whatever of Americans are right, and it's heading the wrong direction, and there's going to be a day it all hits the fan in our not-too-distant future. And so I go about 20-some years beyond that, and uh, that's just a dystopian novel. But my centerpiece is the reason for the title, Flashback, is a drug that 94% of Americans are taking in this fairly near future, it's a drug that allows you not to remember, but to actually relive parts of your own life. $15 buys you 15 minutes of flashback, and you can just focus. You learn the technique quickly, and any 15 minutes of your life, you will relive. You can't change it, can't be involved in it, like take part in a discussion, but you will feel everything you felt, see everything you saw. It's amazing how poor memory is. We think memory is works, but everything's conflated and distorted. You know, you can hear your dead grandmother's voice again. You can you can actually feel being rocked by your mother when you were an infant. You can go back to your dead wife and spend hours and days with her. If you want to relive your honeymoon, you can do it over and over. So I've got a future where there is no future for most Americans. They're living in the past, in their own past. So that's the key to that book. Well, that sounds a lot like... Uh where we're headed at this point. <laughs> I don't know where we're headed, but I, you know, we're all nervous. Mm. And I, I just hope that all the world's problems aren't resolved, or America's problems, until this book comes out in 2011. Because I want people still to be nervous when they read this and be a lot more nervous after they read it. I, I think that you're not, that's an easily granted wish, Dan. <laughs> Especially a year before a big election year. I figure we're all going to be anxious again. Yes, yes. Now, um, <clears throat> it interests me that you are, are writing a dystopia because I, I'm just, uh, 
just finished reading Thomas More's Utopia, which is which is in which is in fact Thomas More, though he wrote about what many people are talk about as the perfect place or uh, a good place. It's actually he thought of it as a dystopia. He he wasn't Tom More the author and More the character who's a character in the book. Neither one of them is particularly thrilled with this idea of the perfect place, and, and we like to now invert that and have the perfectly imperfect place. And it seems to me that a lot of these visions of dystopia are, you know, I, I think we've already arrived. <laughs> well, there have been so many visions and become so stylized. You mm-hmm. know, we have the Mad Max Road Warrior vision. We have the Harlan Ellison uh, Boy and His Dog vision. We have, we have all these stylized visions. It, it's been a long time since they've really shocked us the way uh, Brave New World or 1984 has. Mm-hmm. And they do arrive. But I agree with Kurt Vonnegut on one thing, the late Kurt Vonnegut, when he said, if writers serve any function at all in society, and you probably know the quote, he says, we're the canaries in the cage. When miners go into a mine, they're not sure of noxious gases, so they hold that 12-foot pole ahead of them with the canaries. When that sensitive canary falls off its perch dead, there are bad gases in the air. And that's the only function we writers can really serve. And we do it largely through our utopian and dystopian uh, novels. Uh, I agree. I think that, you know, it seems to me that many writers who write dystopian novels write them just to so that we can check that future off the list of things that's actually going to happen. Right. <laughs> I, I want mine to be a little unnerving. So instead of checking it off, we sort of look around and, you know, check our pockets and look at everything a little different and say, oh, damn, uh, it's too much of this is already here. And my goal, quite honestly... <laughs> It's a political novel, but mm-hmm. I'd, I've been obsessed with Shakespeare for the last year, reading about five hours a day. And uh, I was obsessed with Thomas More for many years. But I want it to be a Shakespearean political novel in that if it comes out and people read it and, and get worked up over one way or the other, all the right-wingers will read it and say, See, I told you so. And all the left-wingers will read it and say, See, I told you so. And as far as the independents and people in the center, they'll just be depressed. <laughs> well, I guess I'll be prepared to take some happy pills before and or after I read your next novel. I've been speaking with Dan Simmons. His new novel is Black Hills. It's a historical novel, so though you may have to look for it in the horror section of the of the bookstore, know that this is a book about American history and an American novel. It is an American novel, right? Thank you for joining me, Dan. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.